from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Not only borrowing time, I was borrowing health that she could, she would, wasn't afforded to her if she had caught the virus. And so you just, it, it's like your world comes crashing in and, you know, it, it's kind of like putting your child in a car and not putting them in a car seat. It's like, why would you do that? We have to just keep trying as long as it takes, because to your to your very first point, it impacts us all. It is going to impact St. Louis. It is going to impact Kansas City, these places where they, there are relatively higher vaccine rates if we don't get the vaccine rates up in these rural areas. If we want to get people to eventually come on board with the vaccine, we have to let them get there on their own. I'm Sarah Fenske. When Melanie Hall's daughter Jillian became eligible for vaccination, they didn't rush to get it done. Jillian is just 12 years old. Most kids who contract COVID-19 do just fine. But Melanie lives in Springfield, which has been hard hit by the Delta variant. And she joins us today to share her story of what happened next. Melanie Hall, welcome. Thank you so much, Sarah. So, Melanie, your daughter Jillian became eligible for vaccination on May 10th. Was she open to getting the shot? She's never shown any resistance. I will take full responsibility for why she was not vaccinated. I think like many Americans, um, we all were ready for it to be over. And so when the minute we got that green light, we went into a phase of it's over in our minds that we cited. And so I thought I had a lot of time. Hmm. Which, which I didn't have. Yeah. And so you got vaccinated yourself um, when you became eligible. Correct. But then as a 12-year-old, she became eligible a, little, a bit later. You just didn't get it done. That brings us to July 1st. She came home from camp with a stuffy nose. You took her to the doctor Correct. just a few days later. Were you worried when they told you it was COVID? You know, she had just been showing mild sinus um, drainage. So at that point, I'm like, well, it's probably just allergies from being at the campground. And so I was just going in to make sure it wasn't a sinus infection. At that point, I just thought we were going to hold steady with those symptoms. I was more concerned, obviously, with it being COVID, but I was not near as concerned as I probably should have or knew I was going to have to be in the next few days. Because mm-hmm. things really escalated from there. You took her to an urgent care, and then five days later, this is on July 14th, you took her a second time. Tell us a bit about what kind of symptoms she was having, what she was going through. Sure. So she maintained, you know, just like I said, allergy-like symptoms and a low-grade fever that fluttered. Some days she wouldn't even have it. July 9th, she spiked a fever of 104.6. Ooh. Um, was on the point of passing out um, and was very, very sick. Um, at that point, we went to urgent care. It was what they thought bacterial pneumonia. So they gave her an antibiotic steroids and now butyrol inhaler. So on the 14th, she hadn't made any progress, actually. She was deteriorating. And she met me at the kitchen counter that morning 
and she literally put both palms on the kitchen counter and kind of looked down like, like I would look after I just ran a race. Mm. <laughs> and she said, Mom, I can't breathe. And my first point was, you know, you're being dramatic. You know, like, come on. Because we had not had that, that point yet. Mm-hmm. And um, she kind of, she just wasn't even able to eat. And um, I looked at our discharge paperwork from our first urgent care visit, and it said, you know, if there's no improvement with the antibiotic in three to five days, she needs to go come back and see us. So that's exactly what we did at that point. So, um, so how bad know, was she then? I mean, once she, she got back to the doctors at the urgent care for the second uh-huh. time, um, was there a clear sense where they were very concerned? Yes, they were absolutely concerned. Um, we We checked in, and, of course, in their first, couple screening questions, I identified she was COVID positive. They immediately took her pulse ox at check-in because they were getting ready to send us back to our vehicle to wait for a physician. At that point, her heart rate was 144 and her pulse ox was 82. Thinking that she had, um, that they were misreading that pulse ox, they took it again. And she, um, at that point, was then seen by a nurse. And then the doctor quickly met us in the in the waiting area. Um, then she was put on immediately put on oxygen, and EMS was called. So they did not send you back to the car at this point. This was all systems were, were moving forward that she was going to the hospital. I understand that the physicians addressed you pretty pointedly on that day. What did they say to you? So the physicians at the emergency room make um, no small talk about. Uh, just the fact that, you know, children need to be vaccinated. And the reason why they're, you know, that the reason why we were in the situation we were in is because she was not vaccinated. Um, At that point, you know, her stats were still high. Her heart rate was 145. She was hovering in the low 90s with four liters of oxygen. And the ER physician said, you know, she's, her body's working that hard to keep that amount of, amount of air in her lungs, she said, this is no good. And she said, this is because she's not vaccinated. And it was, it was a, a whirlwind of terrible emotions because not only are you scared, but you feel a tremendous amount of responsibility and guilt mm-hmm. all at the same time. You later wrote um, just a remarkable Facebook post about this journey. I want to read a quote from, from this passage. You wrote, She is just a child. I make her decisions, and I have to watch her live within the life I choose for her. On July 14th, it didn't matter who I voted for or what church I attend. It mattered if I had chosen to vaccinate her, which I did not. She was left to deal with COVID in a very bad way. I gave her time and a freedom that wasn't mine to give. As a mother, that's just so sobering to me to read those words. Was it hard to deal with that guilt in, in the days that followed as, as you watched her struggle in the hospital? Uh, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And we were dealing with complications that I didn't even know existed in the emergency room. She was screened for a pulmonary embolism, myocarditis, things I didn't even know were possible. And I was living in an ignorance of bliss world where I was borrowing time for my child, and I was not only borrowing time, I was borrowing health that she she wasn't afforded to her if she had caught the virus. And so you just, it, it's like your world comes crashing in, and, you know, 
it's, it's kind of like putting your child in a car and not putting them in a car seat. It's like, why would you do that in retrospect? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's very hard to grapple with all of that in the midst of watching your daughter um, be on, on, on machines and several providers watching over her. And, you know, she had a ride in the ambulance alone. Those were terrifying moments for both her and I. So this is just a very sobering episode. There's a reason this post went viral. This is every parent's worst nightmare. I have to ask, how is Jillian doing today? Jillian's doing very well. So she spent five days in the hospital. On day three or four, um, she was able to stabilize her own stats with room air. So she was sent home without oxygen. And she's just resting, thank God it's summer, so we can kind of relax and rest. Um, She gets fatigued, of course. We just had our follow-up visit today, and she appears to be just fine. Of course, um, the body can take months to heal, what the physicians have told us. So she's still dealing with a little bit of irritation in her lungs, so she gets winded um, easier than, you know, a normal 12-year-old would. Hmm. Well, so just even beyond just the terror of watching your kid go through this and all the pain, I think one reason your Facebook post was just so good is that you also did a great job of of describing just the drudgery, the monotony of days on end in the hospital and just what a what a tough summer this was for Jillian being in isolation and and how hard it was for you. I feel like maybe sometimes that point gets lost. There's there's high drama, but there's also also just this this low misery. Was that a big part of this? Absolutely. So when they admitted Jillian, they told me to go ahead and go home and get my things because once you get put into isolation with your child, which was honestly a privilege because she's a minor, so I had that opportunity, but once you're in isolation, if you choose to leave, you cannot come back. Hmm. So I was going to be there the duration of her stay. So I, I, of course, packed my things. And while you're relieved you're with your child, I don't think you're ready to... You don't understand what it's like to be fully isolated. We, in our facility, we were behind a glass door that is open and shut. We were in a negative air pressure room, so they couldn't even come through that main hallway. They had to come through a secondary door, of course, where that they put their PPE on to see us. But, you know, we don't have housekeeping. We don't have a nurse's aid. They make their in and outs, you know, as efficient as possible. We communicated with notes through the glass door. If I needed water, ice, coffee, whatever, more blankets. Um, And we were the fourth uh, pediatric patient on the PICU unit that day. So um, their time with you is very efficient. We've received excellent care, but there is no doting. You you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's you get what you, you need and then they're on. So it's a very isolating feeling. We have no visitors. Um, it's just you and your patient. It's very isolating. And, and the way they treat your belongings is even interesting. Um, everything's wrapped and discarded. Very, you, you almost feel like you're an animal behind a glass door. I mean, we were treated very humanely, so I don't want to sure. communicate that. But it's a very isolating feeling, and that's the only way I, can, I know how to describe it. I really want to encourage people to read Melanie's Facebook post. We've got that linked on our face on our St. Louis on the Air uh, story about this, stlpr.org. You can find this. It's such a sobering story. And I will say, Melanie, you're making a big impact because of this post and because of it going viral. You've heard from some people who are actually taking actions. Is, is that right? 
we are, and my daughter and I are so thrilled um, because from a bad situation, we're making some good impact. So we know of seven adolescents who um, parents have made the decision to go ahead and get their children vaccinated. So does that, so on some level, yeah, that th- there's the silver lining of all this suffering. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, I've done all this with my daughter's consent. She knows every word I've written, every word I've spoken. And, and she truly never wants another child to have to go through what she went through. So for her, seven is a huge victory. Well, Melanie Hall, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad Jillian's doing well, and we hope people will take these words to heart. So thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. We do need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to a WashU researcher about what she's learned about overcoming vaccine hesitancy. We're also going to open our phone lines and we want to hear from you. If you wavered on getting a vaccine, we want to hear what pushed you over the edge. Call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio. We heard from Melanie Hall. She's a Springfield mom who didn't make vaccination a priority. Her 12-year-old daughter became very seriously ill. And she's not the only one who failed to get her daughter a vaccine when she could. Just 40% of Missourians have been fully vaccinated. Some rural Missouri counties have seen fewer than 25% of residents get even a single shot. And that's made the show-me state a new hotspot. The White House recently noted that Missouri, Texas, and Florida are home to 40% of all cases of COVID-19 across the U.S. So what can be done to persuade the unpersuaded? That's a question that Beth Prusasek has been thinking about throughout this pandemic. She's an instructor of medicine at the Washington University School of Medicine. In April, she published a paper exploring, quote, strategies for disseminating and implementing COVID-19 vaccines in rural areas. And she joins us today to talk about that work. So Beth, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So Beth, how important are rural areas when it comes to getting this virus under control? Sure. I think they are imperative to not only our state, but our country really beating back this pandemic. We we have to rely on everybody. It can't just be an urban or a rural issue. And I think for many of us who study rural health, we saw this divide early on when COVID really wasn't uh, uh, flourishing in rural areas, but yet those rural areas were being asked to lock down, stay home, keep your kids home, close your businesses. And there was a disconnect between what they were seeing in the communities and what they were being asked to do. And I I knew right then we were going to be in for it because there was going to be this disconnect between what was being asked of them and what they were seeing in the in the real world. And that has just trickled down now to where we're at with vaccines, where they they have never felt that the the reality of what they're being asked to do has matched what they've seen. Unfortunately, though, of course, now COVID is is just um, exploding in these rural areas, and it is now the reverse. Where here in the urban areas, we are we are not seeing it as much, uh, but we do have to make sure that everybody gets vaccinated because as much as we can uh, tamp down the virus everywhere, we will reduce the amount of variants and we will reduce the transmission for those who who can't get vaccinated, who are immunocompromised, uh, who maybe really would like to have that vaccine but can't. If we can't get everybody else vaccinated, we are only putting them at more risk. And that brings us to this paper that you published in the spring. This is back at a time when 
and those of us in cities were kind of cursing the rural areas. Like, we wanted to go down there and get vaccinated, and they weren't doing it. We weren't really thinking about this the way you were thinking about it. And so you looked at case studies for other vaccination campaigns. That includes HPV. What did you learn as you looked at that? Absolutely. I, I again, saw the writing on the wall that everybody was, was excited to get the vaccine, and we were going to sort of put it out there to rural areas and say, well, if they get it, they get it. If they don't, they don't. We've got ours. We're good. And so I looked at what had been published previously on vaccine dissemination in rural areas, HPV vaccine, the flu vaccine. And there were a number of strategies that I think we could have employed uh, and should have employed earlier on in rural areas. Uh, For example, with um, some studies looking at the HPV vaccine, there was a lot of reporting from parents that they would like to hear information from their religious leaders, from their pastors, from their priests, those who expressed hesitancy in hearing that information from their religious leaders. The hesitancy was that they didn't know if the religious leader was qualified or uh, knowledgeable about uh, speaking on that topic. And so I recommended that we put out a lot of outreach to religious leaders, get them ready to talk about the COVID vaccine, make sure they have the skills, the knowledge, the tools to address their congregations, to address their, their parishes so that they are able to be that trusted messenger in the moment when the parishioner comes to them and says, should I get vaccinated? Should I have my uh, child get the vaccine? That that uh, religious leader is prepared to have that conversation. To sort of encourage them that they're part of this effort, like we need you to be ready for this. Absolutely. I think one of the, the my most frustrating uh, aspects of this is this, this um, narrative that people in rural areas should just ask their doctor go down to the pharmacy. Many people in rural America don't have a regular primary care doctor. The pharmacy is 25 miles away. So it is going to be these community leaders, such as religious leaders, business leaders, uh, education leaders, school superintendents, who are going to be those trusted sources of vaccine information. And we have to make sure they have the tools to be in that role. It's interesting. HPV is obviously a, a tough sell for some parents because you have to confront the idea that your child might at some point have sex. Right. Something no parent ever <laughs> never wants happens. to think about. It seems like COVID-19 would be an easier sell. Right. And you would think uh, there there were certainly challenges to HPV uh, vaccines in all uh, you know facets of the United States and, and the world. Um, I think we have different uh, challenges with COVID. I think one of the, I think probably the biggest challenge is the politicization of this vaccine and, and what identity it uh, you have tied to it, whether or not you're vaccinated. Uh, for better or worse, tells a lot about you uh, and and others uh, and and what they see in you. And that is a a challenge that we have got to overcome. I don't know exactly how. It's going to be very challenging. Uh, I think the the other important lesson with rural vaccine rollout is it's there's not a panacea for how we're going to overcome this. I think we tend to assume anybody in a rural area who has not gotten the vaccine is hesitant, who uh, believes that it's not real, believes the you know the 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 vaccine has um, you know ch- microchips in it, and that's not the case. That's actually a very small percentage of the people in rural areas who don't want to get vaccinated. It's a lot of access, it's a lot of concerns, and uh, with just healthcare in general, I think rural areas. Um, for a long time, have not been um, receiving the the funding that goes along with public health and healthcare infrastructure. So they have.
have felt forgotten, uh, and rightfully so. So they have a distrust of the healthcare system. And we're seeing all of that historical baggage, unfortunately, uh, brought into probably the worst time uh, in our country's public health uh, history. So dispiriting when you went yes. that way. I want to read one quote from your paper that really stuck out at me. And again, you looked at like numerous previous case studies, sort of compiling the work of other researchers yes. who'd done original studies. In one case, you wrote, researchers looking at the uptake of the influenza vaccine in one rural town found that both residents who received the vaccine and those who did not believed the vaccine was affordable, convenient, and quick to receive. The main difference between those who received the vaccine and those who did not was whether they believed the vaccine made them sick and whether they believed getting the vaccine was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. How do you begin making the case that this is something that wor- that is worthwhile? It seems so clear-cut from people who, again, are coming from maybe a different politicization, different perspective. Right. I think this is where it is not for me as the expert in St. Louis to tell an individual in a rural area why the vaccine is worthwhile. That is going to be a conversation that they are going to have to have with those near and dear to them, to, to, to the trusted messenger, to their family, to their friends, to their congregation. Uh, it is it is going to be individualized. And I think that is what I have seen when I've talked with community leaders, when I've I've wrote op-eds in rural newspapers, asking folks to, to have those conversations and encouraging those who are sort of pro-vaccine to reach out to those near them that they, they think may have hesitancy. It's it's always surprising what's sort of the key that unlocks that door for people. It's very different. Um, In a personal example, you know, my, 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 uh, dad and stepmom live in rural Kentucky. My dad was ready to get the vaccine. My stepmom wanted to wait and see what went on with him. She sort of said, you go first <laughs> and you, you let me know how it goes. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, we'll see what happens with you and then I'll maybe get it. Uh, but that was what it took. There was nothing I could have said. There was nothing the science. She knew the science. It was just, I want to see someone close to me get it and then I'll decide if it's worthwhile. And so it's going to be different for every individual. And I think the most important thing we can do right now is try and have the local community be the ones doing the outreach, being the ones knocking on doors or having conversations or putting uh, things out in the media, on social media to encourage the community that they are a part of to, to, to get the vaccine. It's interesting you mentioned social media because there's so many keyboard warriors <laughs> and so many of them are so angry right now and just, you know, screw these people. They've asked for it. They mm-hmm. didn't get vaccinated. Um, is that a helpful attitude for <laughs> the unpersuaded? No, surprisingly, it is not. It is not not helpful to be um, bashing anybody who chooses not to get the vaccine. I completely understand healthcare providers and public health professionals' frustration. I actually wrote a piece uh, in in um, December about that and how I've experienced that with my own family. The frustration of them, uh, perhaps um, not not following all of the guidelines, but it is not helpful, and it is only. I think, causing people to dig in their heels. Again, we are in an unprecedented time of politicization with a a, a disease and with the treatment for that disease. We don't have any other examples where it has been so divided. And if we continue to make those comments, even if we are just preaching to the choir on our social media or screaming into the void, it is still public. It is still just driving this narrative that there are people who don't want to get it because they are ignorant, because they don't care about anybody else, because they are Republican or whatever. And it's only making this divide more um, in the in the narrative. And if we if we want to get people to eventually come on board with the vaccine, we have to let them get there on their own, as frustrating as it is. And the way I look at it is, as we are asking them to get the vaccine for the greater good, we need to 
uh, keep our mouth shut and sit on our hands for the greater good. As frustrating as it may be, we have to pull on our empathy reserves in these times. Doesn't it feel like asking someone to keep their mouth shut should be the hardest <laughs> ask, and yet this yes. is America. <laughs> I got to ask, though, I've noticed recent headlines um, showing that in the Springfield area where there were so many cases and there was such hesitancy, they have seen a real uptick. And I'm thinking about stories like Melanie Hall, who was on earlier, and just a terrifying story for any parent. Do you think fear could end up being a really good motivator here? For, for some people, absolutely. I think, again, it's going to be dependent on different people. Some people will absolutely not be motivated by fear. I think I saw one individual who was um, about to be discharged from a hospital in uh, southeast Missouri who said, I will not get the vaccine. Even though I've just suffered through COVID and been in the ICU, he was not moved to get that. So there's going to be something else uh, and perhaps nothing that will ever get him to, to get the vaccine. I think we have to uh, also be very patient with how slow of a process this is going to be. There's not going to be one effort that's going to dramatically increase the number of vaccines in rural areas. Every single shot in an arm is a win, and we have to just keep trying as long as it takes. Because to your to your very first point, it impacts us all. It is going to impact St. Louis. It is going to impact Kansas City, these places where they, there are relatively higher vaccine rates if we don't get the vaccine rates up in these rural areas. Hmm. So this is so important. Um, and you've, you've read these studies. You've got some great advice here today. What's the thing you'd want to leave us with today? What should we keep in mind as we're thinking about how to help inch that upward? I think two things. Uh, the, to, the, to the earlier point, try to pull on your empathy reserves. Try to understand that people have reasons, just as we all did for whether or not we got the vaccine in urban areas. People have those same reasons in rural areas. Rural is just as diverse as urban areas in terms of people's beliefs and people's, uh, uh, you know, readiness to get the vaccine. So I think pull on your empathy reserves and also recognize when you are not the best messenger. <laughs> recognize when you are not the person to be having that conversation. Uh, someone recently asked me, you know, what what have I found to be the most effective at um, having uh, overcoming vaccine uh, hesitancy? And, and I said, I try to just not have those conversations very much because I know I'm likely the only trust, I'm the only trusted messenger for those in my social circle, my family, my friends. I am not going to convince somebody who I don't know through social media. So I'm just not going to have that that battle. I'm not going to have that conversation. So I think if we could all try to take a step back, just be empathetic and and really understand that we might not be the right people to to change hearts and minds and to empower those who are the right people. That's where I have found my uh, to be the most effective uh, strategy is to encourage those who are the most trusted messengers in their communities to speak up, to speak out, give them the tools to do this. Hmm. And maybe for each of us to think about the couple people in our life um, where we actually might have some exactly. sway. Exactly. We all have a few people, uh, and, and those are the people we should be talking to. Well, Beth Prusasek, instructor of medicine at Washington University School of Medicine, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.